Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm delighted to share with you an episode featuring two of the greatest minds in education, Becky Allen and Sam Sims. During our chat, we discussed teacher and school development, teacher professional development, teacher retention, and much, much more. If you enjoy this episode, I know you will, then please leave a review wherever you get your podcast picks from. And that's enough for me. Without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Becky Allen and Sam Sims. It's great to have you here, Becky and Sam. How are you? Great. Very happy to be here. Thanks, Karen. Now, we always begin with our guests and numbers to get a feel for who they are. So my first question to you, Becky, is years in education. Well, I trained to teach in 2002-03, so I think it makes it 20 years this summer I've been in education. Fantastic. Do we get a watch after 20 years or is it a, a clock? Um, I don't know. My <laughs> my mother-in-law had a clock hanging on her wall, but in those days they came from the local authority and you would work for a local authority for your whole career. And so they would know how long you'd been around. Um, so I don't know that anyone gets anything <laughs> now, do they? <laughs> Books published? I've published two books, The Teacher Gap and The Next Big Thing in Education. And I've also, um, according to Sam, I've written 87 um, papers about education, mostly academic papers that can be found on Google Scholar and other places. Paper citations? Um, again, according to Sam, 2,461. I don't really know whether that, what that means or whether it's good or bad, but it seems like a big number to me. It does. It seems impressive. Teacher tap questions written? Um, so Teacher Tap has written in the English language, because we operate in other countries now, 7,473 questions. Of those, I've probably written about half of them. So it's a lot of questions. Teacher Tap questions answered? I don't know. I use multiple accounts to test Teacher Tap and check it's working. So the current account I'm on tells me I've only answered 481 questions, which is not many. <laughs> most important year group? Okay, I'm going to go for a controversial one that nobody will agree with, which is I'm going to pick year three. So this is why. When kids are younger than that, um, they're developmentally kind of immature in terms of their motor skills and their executive function. And so learning is necessarily quite slow and inefficient. And I think there's a reason why kind of basically age seven is the same is the age when traditionally proper education kicks off because you're able to start learning quite efficiently. And that's why, you know, traditionally prep schools would start then juniors, formal education in other countries. And why not later? Well, when I wonder what on earth education's for, which is like most of the time, the one thing I'm certain about is like teaching the three R's is really important. So the time within education where we're really focused on getting good at reading, writing and arithmetic has to be like the most important years in education. Yeah, I mean, you say unpopular, but I think certainly listeners of thinking about primary education, we're very strong proponents that we put our strongest teachers you know, in those earliest years, uh, you know, and that's at the, interesting. the start of key stage two, if that doesn't go right, well, then year six is twice, three times as difficult mm. as it might, you know, as it needs to be. Favourite year group? 
Well, I was a secondary trained teacher. So when I taught, my favourite year group was year seven. Um, Since then, I have at my own kids' school run an infant singing club. And I will categorically say that I like year two a lot more than reception in year one. Reception in year one are just, for me, like really crazy and hard to manage. Whereas year twos are an absolute joy to work with and have incredible memories. So for singing, they can just learn anything just like that, which when you're a middle-aged adult, is kind of an astonishing kind of skill to have. So I suspect I should have been a junior school teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Tweets. Um, My profile says um, 9,948, but for a a long while I did used to auto-delete them. Um, And this has, in fact, reminded me that I must start auto-deleting them again. (laughs) Fantastic. And Sam, if I can ask you some similar questions. My first one for you, Sam, is years in education. I've been hanging around in uh, higher education, often doing teaching of, um, you know, 18 to 21-year-olds for about... 10 years now, slightly less, but almost a decade. Papers written? Papers written, uh, 34. And paper citations? Paper citations, 674, according to Google Scholar. Now, Sam, have you written any teacher type questions? Um, I, I sometimes bug, question, uh, bug Becky, sorry, and uh, ask her to put them in for me, but I don't actually write the text. Um, <laughs> so yeah, backseat driver every now and then. Teacher type questions answered? Uh, As a point of principle, I don't answer the questions because uh, I'm not a teacher and, you know, my researcher brain thinks I don't want to pollute the sample here. Uh, But I read the blogs every week. Um, So, yeah, big fan of teacher tech. That's a fair answer. Most important year group? Um, Well, yeah, I'm going to ruin Becky's answer now by saying that I'm also quite interested in year three, actually. (laughs) Partly because I'm interested in reading fluency and year three seems to be quite an important uh, year for that. Um, so maybe we can discuss that a bit later. Paper G group? Is it fair to ask that? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm, so I haven't taught in a primary school ever, um, so I'm not sure about that. Tweets? Tweets is something like 100 at the moment because I still auto-delete all my tweets. Wow, so, I mean, this is the first time I've heard of auto-deletion. I mean, how, how does that work? It's quite irritating. You have to sign up to a third-party provider and pay them a bit of money to get it done. But it's worth it to um, never be held accountable for anything you've ever said in the past. <laughs> so I would recommend it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing I want to do when this, when this interview ends, <laughs> is check this out. <laughs> Becky, you're a co-founder and chief analyst at TeacherTap, academic, mm. author, and I think champion of the highest quality teacher development. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Well, um, so I trained as a teacher of economics and business studies. Um, And while I was teaching, I did a master's part-time in the evening at the Institute of Education in London, which is where I trained. Um, And I loved studying for a master's. Um, And so I was really lucky that I applied to get a scholarship to do a PhD, which I did full-time. And at the time, it was a very quantitative PhD. I've always been a very quantitative researcher and I wrote about um, market-based reforms to education, so school choice and competition and the impact it was having on the system. Um, And I went on to have a lectureship at the Institute of Education, in fact spent most of my career there. Um, In 2014 I went on leave from the Institute of Education to start up um, an organisation that's still around called Education Data Lab and it was a collaboration with FFT. Um, And I really did that because I just wanted to go into a much better 
data environment um, where, you know, if you're a quant researcher, access to really high quality, good, clean data is kind of the thing that makes doing research easy. And that allowed me to do that. But it also took me on a journey of really trying to get much back, much closer, I think, to working more directly with teachers and with schools and to thinking about what they need in the system to understand the nature of the work that they do rather than thinking about purely academic research. So I did go briefly back to the Education Institute of Education because I was only ever on leave. Um, but by then, um, Laura McInerney and Alex Weatherall and I had started TeacherTap um, in 2017, in, in the summer of 2017, so five years ago. And what had started as something we thought we'd be doing for fun on a Sunday afternoon for a few hours had quickly spiralled into something really large. And so the three of us were having to make very, very tough decisions about what to do about that. And in the end, I decided to give up um, uh, my academic post so that I could um, just focus on teacher tap. At the time, my kids were really young. So doing both was just completely infeasible. So now, I mean, I work one day a week at the University of Brighton. I live in Sussex, so it's my local university. I am doing research on primary schools a little bit, um, on primary teachers' experiences of remote instruction during the pandemic. Um, and I'm working with a team who's doing research on um, uh, how maths curriculum resources are being used in primary schools. Um, and then the rest of the time, I just work on TeacherTap, where things have continued to grow and keep us very busy, not least because we also work directly with schools now who want to survey their teachers, um, where we're specifically trying to focus on how you ask good questions for school improvement, rather than just endlessly asking teachers how they are and finding out they're not very happy. Um, so that's why I've got to today. Yeah, I mean, I often find that as a teacher, when I'm reading research and when the researchers are coming at it from sort of the similar angle as yourself, Becky, where, you, you know, it's quantitative and it's going to be put to good use. I find it infinitely more useful than um, some other camps. I don't know if that's a really value-laden judgment, but I, I know that lots of people who are listening will really appreciate the, the work that you do in, in TeacherTap in particular. We have our own in, impression of how things are in schools, but when you see these sort of reasonably large samples sort of mm. giving you a different picture, it really makes you think about, uh, mm. about what's happening. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll come back to this. You know, the teaching profession and schools are enormously diverse. And whenever anyone says to me, but I'm sure no teacher thinks that or does that, I can say to them, I promise you somewhere someone does and someone will. Um, and it's been really sobering experience, actually, to endlessly be proven wrong by the questions we ask in TeacherTap and just find out that things are not quite as you assume them to be, given your own experiences of the schools you teach in or perhaps the schools your children go to, um, that, you, that you can't just assume that everybody is doing everything the same. And that's what makes policy making ultimately so difficult, as I think we'll discuss today. Yeah, sometimes we'll sit and go, who's in that 2%? Who, who could that possibly be? Yeah. And then we have really rich discussions about the fact that, oh, people might think about this, this and this. So yeah, I think it's definitely mm. massively helpful. Mm. So Sam, you're a lecturer at the CEPEO um, at UCL, author and co-author of perhaps the most important meta-analysis review of for a generation. Those are my words, but I, I think they're true. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Yeah, so I did a, um, the dreaded PPE degree um, at Oxford. And um, as part of that, we had one week on a social policy module, um, which uh, was about education policy. And I just thought it was really, really fascinating. You know, sort of did the reading list from start to finish, unlike most of the other weeks. 
um, and learned about things like, I remember reading a paper by Sharon Gewurz on school choice and just thinking this was absolutely fascinating. And so after university, I kind of fell into a job in a think tank uh, doing kind of policy related work, uh, but spent a lot of time reading, you know, proper research by proper researchers, including Becky's research. And so I applied for doctoral funding um, to do a PhD and was supervised initially by Becky and later John Jerem. And I was motivated in my in my PhD research by you know, reading a lot of the literature on how important teachers are for people's outcomes and the importance of teacher quality. But at the same time, seeing what was going on with the teacher profession in England and including, you know, my own friends from my own cohort who had qualified to become teachers. And many of them were quite disillusioned with it. And some of them were leaving and wondering, you know, this is a bit of a paradox here. If we think teachers and teaching is so important, why does it all not seem to be well in the teaching profession? Um, so I studied that for a few years and now um, uh, I'm kind of switching into studying teacher education and uh, continuing professional development. Uh, and as you flagged, yeah, we've recently or last year published a, a meta-analysis for the EEF on what makes for effective teacher professional development. Yeah, I think it, it's been wonderful seeing the release of that sort of review and all the company materials because I think it, it's managed to break through and it's not just for those of us who are interested in this kind of thing, you know, education as a hobby, so to speak. But I'm seeing head teachers engage with the, the sort of the idea of mechanisms and things. So I think I do think it it has the potential to be really, really powerful. The nicest thing anyone can say about my research is that it's useful. So if I've achieved that a bit with this report, then uh, then I'm happy with that. Based on your extensive experience and research, what are your guiding principles for teacher and school development, and do they overlap? Sam, can I throw that your way first? Yeah, I think it's um, this is now quite a big literature. You know, we found 104 papers in our review, uh, and so it's quite hard to, to to sort of boil it down to a principle. But if I had to really sort of synthesize it as far as it can possibly go, I'd say that a, a pretty good heuristic for thinking about it is that professional development should be long and thin rather than lumpy. Uh, you know, so we set out in the paper four things that we think professional development needs to achieve to be effective. It needs to build some knowledge about what teach, good teaching and learning is like. It needs to motivate some change in practice so that teachers come away feeling you know, excited and really looking to change. Uh, it needs to develop techniques, some way of putting that into practice in the classroom, and then it needs to embed that. And all of those stages take time. You know, all of them on each of them takes more than one day, for example. You know, knowledge building is a process, not an event. Developing new techniques, iterating them, refining them in the classroom, this takes time. And embedding things, you know, it just takes practice. This doesn't happen overnight. And so if your professional development, uh, you know, looks like big, lumpy sort of plods of PD, you know, a whole day on this and then not much afterwards, you're probably not doing it right. Um, whereas if it's long and thin, you know, you're revisiting ideas, you're iterating, you're refining, you're getting feedback on the same stuff over time you're more likely to be getting it right. That's my, that's my attempt to be pithy. Uh, that's a hundred pages of a uh, hundred pages of report boiled down to two minutes. <laughs> and if maybe I can add to that, to think about the relationship between what school development might be and what teacher development might be. I suppose the dilemma we have is that schools are complex systems. So it's almost impossible to characterize anything that a school would do by way of development that's independent of its teachers. 
And this presents something of a dilemma because teachers are necessarily diverse. Um, and I say necessarily because they have to be diverse in part because of the nature of the people that they're teaching is very diverse. They are diverse because they've been trained in bygone eras where they have particular pedagogies and habits of the classroom that they can't disrupt and you disrupt at your peril, frankly. Um, they're also diverse because teachers are quite diverse in their personality types and therefore their preferences for how they feel comfortable behaving in the classroom. And so where you have a system where um, the system functions through the individuals and the individuals are very diverse in the things that you want them to do, it creates really great challenges for creating some sort of overarching framework um, for teaching practice and the improvement of teaching practice. And that's why I think it's probably true that when we think about classroom instructional practice and the development of a school through the development of classroom instructional practice is always likely to be complex and diverse and therefore an individualized approach to development and improvement, which isn't to say there aren't other things that can happen by way of school development. And I think that often when you think of the things that are common, there are often things that um, apply and are very pertinent to things that happen outside the privacy of the classroom. We think about common behaviours and where they're important around a school and common behaviours are, are, are the common culture, um, the common goals that you have, decisions about how you use common times within schools, assemblies, breaks, lunches, clubs and so on. And then, you know, we've seen some success in aligning curriculum practice, um, for example, in the case of um, phonics. Um, and, but that's a relatively rare example of where we've made, made it happen. And it hasn't been easy to make it happen. And one of the reasons why um, it has worked is because of just the intensity of how school development, teacher development through training, through the ITT development of training of teachers, um, the provision of curriculum resources, so government specification of exactly what happens, all those things had to align just to get to the point where within a primary school, that very short episode of time within, mostly within reception class and year one, managed to get aligned nationally in the way that we deliver it. Um, but I would say that's a relatively atypical example of us managing to do development in an aligned way in the system. Yeah, I mean, thinking back to what would have been the start of this academic year, and I saw how much training went into, you know, every adult in the school who was involved in the, the teaching of phonics. And I, I thought I knew about phonics until this training started mm. and I started talking to people who had more expertise than, than me. Um, and you're right, it was a momentous effort. And what's interesting about phonics, I think, is that it was not just that we chose to align around something that had been demonstrated to be effective. I think the literature was largely there that some version of synthetic phonics was, was, was the correct approach for a language like English. But more importantly, that alignment yielded other benefits that were independent of the effectiveness of phonics itself. So even if we'd aligned around something that was no more or less effective than other practices, there are sometimes in the system really big benefits of aligning um, because we can train people consistently, because teachers can move between schools knowing exactly how things are going to be taught, because we can train parents up into what to expect. And one of the lovely things about my own two children learning to teach using a phonics scheme was that we could get training from the school. We go in and we learn about what phonics is. And then every single book that comes home tells us what we're supposed to do. And there's no mystery around what reading is. And so we have all these benefits of alignment around phonics that aren't necessarily attached to the fact it happened to be SSP, but it was actually just alignment in itself. Um, and I think there are probably other 
areas of the primary curriculum where the system would benefit from greater alignment. You know, for example, we're relatively atypical as a country that we just teach handwriting however we fancy it. And so as teachers move between schools, as parents don't know how their kids should be joining letters together, you know, the system would just benefit from us all deciding how how we're going to join letters together. So we could all just do it the same way. The resources could be aligned. Everything could work. Um, and I doubt anybody is so attached to a particular way of joining letters together that that we could, you know, we would see significant downsides of getting alignment there. What about your mathematics? Because obviously you've, you said you've been doing some research in mathematics. Is there anything you would uh, try and align us um, in that field? Well, there's been a certain amount of alignment that happened courtesy of Nick Gibb around written methods. And let me just say something about that. As somebody who taught year seven maths in an era where there wasn't alignment, it was really incredibly difficult to have classes arriving where um, the kids' um, long written methods for things like long multiplication had been taught in diverse ways, which is not to say there's not benefits or drawbacks of the different types of written methods. Um, it's simply that at some point you need to have common instructional approaches within a system where kids move schools and everybody moves schools pretty much at secondary school. So I'm largely in favour of any instance where um, a method's going to be used over the long run that we align as far as possible. Um, when it comes to the question of um, how much alignment have we achieved so far in maths, well, that's very interesting because there is obviously now one mathematics curriculum provider that is extremely large in the primary sector and grew substantially during the pandemic because their resources that were available were just so great for parents to use at home. And so we've kind of had de facto alignment, haven't we? Um, perhaps without planning it via, via the government. And I'm okay with that, you know, I'm largely skeptical that DfE is the right group of people to decide what should be being done in schools. Um, do we need more alignment in mathematics? Well, I think that's the second order question to how much of the mass curriculum do we need to cross a big line through and say we won't teach. And I feel very strongly mastery is so critical, teaching in such a way that the majority of kids get the majority of answers wrong in their SATs. And that those who got the questions right, their, th their thinking and understanding of mathematics is so superficial that they have to be retaught everything in key stage three. Um, and the only way we can fix this is cross out large parts of the maths curriculum, um, very large parts of it. I never did it at primary school, and it's certainly not necessary to be done, given it's all retaught. I've, every so often I come across people who say, yes, but we could just teach it better. And do you know what? Yes, we could. Of course we could. But let's for now just accept the way we do teach maths, cross a whole load of it out, actually focus on achieving mastery and deep conceptual understanding in mathematics and high levels of fluency. And when we are all so brilliant at teaching that way, we can look again at putting some stuff back in. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. I take a massive uh, yeah, sharpie and <laughs> go through it. You know, because there, there are some things in there that are really important that we focus on. Um, and, you know, you could do so much with just mm. within 10 in the first two years of formal schooling mm. and then pupils will flourish later on but mm. you know maybe in the future yeah and, and the system just massively underplays how deeply conceptually complex um mathematics is and so i mean for example my eldest was at home um, in year four for the first part of the lockdown and so White Rose was covering fractions and even White Rose that's supposed to be mastery is just rattling through 
the development of this fundamental idea that, that, that there's a continuous number line, that there are numbers between zero and one. And really, we should be working intensively for a whole year on a number line between about zero and maybe two, and just thinking about, you know, what is the nature of what's going on between those numbers and all the different ways that we represent them. And you can't knock that off in a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. You need a whole year of just working on that to really tackle these ideas. Um, yeah, I mean, that's probably the best I've heard that described. You know, you're absolutely right. So, Becky, in 2018, I heard you say that of the billion pounds spent on CPD in the UK, half of it was wasted on ineffective CPD. Are we any better off in 2022? So the main cost is teacher time of CPD. And therefore, the principal cost of CPD is still actually the five insets that happen for every teacher a year. I'm not sure a lot of that time is any better focused on professional development as opposed to other stuff that goes on. Perhaps that's inevitable and perhaps that's okay. I think the good things that have happened is just a much greater appreciation of how hard it is. Um, my perceptions are that things are better around the MPQs um, and around the rise of instructional coaching. Perhaps Sam might say something about that, though, and give his thoughts yeah. on it. Yeah, so I think... Um... There's that famous paper by Rob Coe, which is his inaugural address at Durham, where he surveyed all the all the kind of long run evidence, um, including when people administered, administered uh, you know, the same tests decades apart and that sort of thing to try and understand whether the school system was improving. And his stark and slightly depressing uh, finding was that it was not. And it's pretty easy to rationalise this when you think about how, just how hard it is for teachers to kind of share what they've learned with each other from their experience in the classroom. Uh, you know, every, every time a teacher retires, they take with them a load of really valuable expertise and they're, they're replaced by a newbie who kind of goes about learning that same expertise all over again. And so in the long run, I think improvements come from, from improvements in the evidence base, essentially, because this provides, you know, new insights about how we should be teaching in the classroom. And it also enables teachers to kind of re more reliably share their own expertise with each other because they have a sort of common language and a justification for learning from each other and so on. Of course, it's all very difficult and, um, uh, and piecemeal, but uh, I think in the long run, evidence is what kind of helps expertise grow in total. And so, yeah, 2018 is an interesting year because I think that was the year that um, the, the famous and influential meta-analysis of instructional coaching showing that it's kind of effective on average uh, was released. And it's been quite interesting watching that kind of permeate the school system in England, partially permeate. You know, we're five, five years down the line and it seems that, um, you know, that's now in quite a lot of schools. It's kind of hard to quantify how, how many, um, but it's certainly popular. No, there, there, are like, there was recently a conference that was dedicated entirely to instructional coaching in schools. Just the fact that we have this evidence to draw on probably does mean we're in a slightly better place. You know, the schools that are doing instructional coaching have probably replaced the sort of lumpy professional development that I was talking about earlier with instructional coaching. Of course, there'll be, an, there'll be a whole sort of distribution of quality. Some people will be kind of interpreting it faithfully and other people less so. It's difficult to get this stuff right. So it's not like we've had a transformation, but just the fact that we've had that, we now have that evidence and it's had some years to bed in means I think we probably are in a slightly better uh, a situation than we were in 2018. So interestingly, I think the new MPQs might be able to sort of speed this up. 
you know, they're all underpinned by a framework. Some of them have quite a lot of scientific research in that framework. And the funding announcements suggest that this, you know, the government's funding 150,000 of these over three years, which is 50,000 a year, just, you know, 10% of the teaching workforce taking part in one of these each year. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge investment and a huge number of teachers taking part in, you know, professional development that's based on uh, some version of the existing, the existing evidence. So hopefully we can speed up um, the process of kind of injecting new evidence into, into the body of the education system, but that remains to be seen. I mean, I think that leads very nicely into my next question, because in the UK, there have been some pretty seismic shifts in governmental involvement in teacher development. Do you think that these shifts will improve our lot? And, and what needs to happen for that to be the, the case? I think I, I'm optimistic, but it's too early to tell. Um, you know, particularly the what are described as the specialist ones. So, for example, leading teacher development, leading literacy, uh, leading teaching. Um, you know, there's a pretty good evidence base underpinning these, and hopefully that will be kind of added to and refined over time. Um, you know, if there is some way of improving the school system, I think it probably looks something like this. Um, the danger is that we try to kind of cram too much stuff into the underpinning frameworks and that will, you know, it runs the risk of kind of overloading the programs and they're just kind of racing through the material. Or it runs the risk of kind of overreach and we're including stuff that isn't really evidence based or is sort of marginally evidence based, um, which I think um, potentially can undermine the credibility of the whole, you know, the framework and the professional qualifications that sit on top of them. So better to, um, you know, have less in the framework and, and better in the framework uh, rather than kind of over expanding. Because there, there's a temptation for policymakers to kind of put their favoured stuff in there, right? And, uh, you know, we, we, want, we want to keep it nice and as clean as possible, scientific as possible. I'm more sceptical than Sam, but that's probably because I'm older than him. One of the defining features, I think, of watching DfE try to do things for 20 years is that you become incredibly sceptical that anything that they've got their finger in is going to be a success. And if we think about it conceptually, anytime DfE choose to do anything prescriptive, they presume that individual schools are incapable of acting in the best interests of learners and teachers. Um, and by anything, I mean whether they're just funneling ring-fenced cash, which they often do, you must spend money on this thing, regulating providers, regulating specifications, all these different ways that intervene. Perhaps individual schools are incapable of acting in the best interests of the system. You know, both Sam and I studied some labour economics, so we both know that individual firms have a tendency to underinvest in general skills since teachers move jobs. You don't necessarily have an incentive, for example, as a head teacher to help develop your own senior leadership team and prepare them for headship themselves, because you may not want them to leave. Um, but I think it's also true that generic government solutions will always be suboptimal for individual situations. And then you ask the question, well, how suboptimal? Well, it depends. I think the MPQs that have been successful are fundamentally ones that are preparing people for more senior roles in schools where the nature of the job is that there are concrete things that can be taught and prepared for outside the classroom. But we've also already talked about the kind of the messiness and the, the 
diversity of classroom practice. And I think you're more limited in what you deliver via MPQs by way of improving teachers within the classroom. And then there's some things that have happened where I think some people would argue that what is contained within the government prescriptions at the moment is suboptimal for pretty much everyone. Unfortunately, it looks like the early career framework is an example of that. Why? Well, it's pretty prescriptive about what mentors and mentees should be doing and should be talking about and should be developing. And it's probably doing that during a time when early career teachers should be and necessarily are firefighting. In other words, like the job of your first two years in teaching is mostly survival. And the job of the mentors is to work out what things are going catastrophically wrong, because there will be something, and to work out a way to help you survive and get through. In the case of secondary teachers, it's nearly always behavior management. Um, and so whilst it might be very interesting to have an ECF that's teaching you stuff about cognition that you're supposed to be working on, ultimately, if you've got a crisis around a year nine class, then you need to be only talking about behavior management and survival for that. And that's, you know, that's just a, an example of how when we talk about classroom practice, you know, that, that frameworks are quite poorly equipped in delivering what teachers need at any point in time to help them get better in terms of instructional practice, which is different to helping heads understand how to be head teachers. Do you think that's exacerbated by the fact that there's such, uh, you know, I think, you know, you're talking about research and it feels as if some of the research that we're using now might move on or we might move away from it um, if the government were to change and the you know the mm. uh, another party were in 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 government and um, you know do you think that's something we should move away from as a system you know towards something where we've got like a an independent sort of group responsible for this kind of thing I don't know. I'm a bit equivocal about it. I mean, I think that given the goals of education, it's necessarily politicized. I'm okay with a government that tells schools what they should do, what they should teach and so on. And in that sense, whilst I dis dislike a lot of the current curriculum faddishness that's going on, I also absolutely think the government had a right to stick their finger into it if that's what they wanted to do, including appointing a chief inspector who would implement the framework they chose to inspect. And, you know, I obviously have grave doubts about, about it, but it doesn't mean that it was the wrong thing to do. Um, I just don't know how you separate so much of what education is and should be from, from the politics of education. Um, that said, you know, there's, there's, there's some scientific stuff that you have to be really careful about baking into a framework because scientific knowledge is always tentative and can, and I think, you know, Sam, you've thought quite a lot about this and how we set up for the long term better frameworks, political frameworks for thinking about this. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I broadly agree with uh, what Becky has said. And I think, I think, yeah, it's a democracy. The government has a right to, um, to direct the system. And it seems to me that there were some areas where what we were providing in initial teacher training was behind the research frontier. It's like really hard to kind of get a definitive um, view of that or evidence how big the gap was um, but anecdotally speaking to head teachers now um, you know they're saying that uh, that their teachers who have been through the ECF now know more about uh, cognitive science and they're more senior teachers who are just a couple of years ahead of them despite the fact that the evidence base itself hasn't developed you know 
much over those two years, science moves slowly. So I think there probably was a gap um, and the, you know, the government have moved uh, perhaps a little clumsily, but um, you know, they've nevertheless moved to try, and, to try and bridge that gap. I think it's highly undesirable for that to, what's in that framework to be shifting as governments come and go. And you know the cl the closest analogy for how you could try to make something like this a bit more independent, or a, a reasonably close analogy, is something like the Bank of England, where they set the goal. The government sets the goal using its democratic right to do it. Um, they specify some sort of target, and then some people who are recognised as experts based on you know publishing research and so on. Um, get appointed to try and pursue it. Now, obviously, there are some differences between trying to deal with inflation and trying to design um, a teacher training program. But it seems like if we're going to do it, something like that seems like the best sort of messy compromise for having stability between, you know, parliamentary cycles and still having some degree of kind of legitimate government involvement in what this massive branch of, you know, the public sector aims to do. Um, but yeah, I, th I think inevitably this is we're in the world of kind of messy contract, uh, messy compromises here, uh, rather than being able to design a sort of perfect system that does everything we want to. Yeah, it, it's definitely not my area of expertise either. I've just sort of thought, okay, there's an opportunity for me to ask the question that's been in the back of my mind um, at times, you know, because I look at other education systems and it seems that we're autocracy as a form of government is more common so to our higher education standards but then again you're into the world of what are high education standards and things like that so I, I'm more than happy to defer to you guys and you know, the idea there might not be an answer to that <laughs> to that question. Yeah. What, one of my um, favourite teacher tech findings uh, Becky was around I think it was around the, the endorsement of sort of VAC learning style principles and how old teachers were or how long they've been in the profession and you could clearly see the sort of cohort of teachers who had been given this at some stage in their careers and, you know they were the older teachers and then younger teachers were less likely to believe it so I think getting this stuff right on entry really does matter because you know some people will still be you know endorsing whatever they learn 40 years later and so it is critical that we uh you know we get this stuff right uh, it's worth uh struggling with and you know having a few uh iterations of reforms to try and try and get it right Perhaps we could have something sim similar question, Becky, for uh, something from the early career framework and see if we can track that moving through. Yeah, we have from time to time asked about knowledge of um, cognitive science and we should do that again. That's a great idea. Put it down the list. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. In influencing the teachers have live on, live on this podcast is fantastic. <laughs> I'm just sort of realizing how political some of these questions are. If you guys were education schools minister, what would your system improvement priorities be? That wasn't intentional. <laughs> Do you want to uh, go first, Sam? Sure. Okay. Uh, so I think mine would be around reading uh, and 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 getting primary reading better than it is now, system wide. So you know, in the Pearls 2016 data, you know, they test a load of year fives. Um, it's hard doing the international comparisons because different countries obviously have different languages with different orthographies and so on. Um, but when you look at the absolute standards in pearls, which are sort of rubric based, one in seven pupils in England in year five are classed as essentially being in the most, in the lowest absolute category, which they describe as being able to locate and retrieve 
explicitly stated information uh, and begin to interpret story events for fiction or begin to make straightforward inferences about explanations in nonfiction texts. And it seems to me that we must be able to do better than essentially retrieving information from a text by year five. I mean, England doesn't do too badly in pearls compared to other English speaking countries. But when you look at the bottom end of the distribution, uh, we look pretty average. And so it seems to me that getting that stuff right would be, you know, a, a good thing to kind of invest my whatever I get 18 months as education secretary or something like <laughs> one year, three weeks. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I think it seems to me just based on kind of my reading of Twitter and, and the secondary teachers that I know that there's an increasing, I don't know, recognition or verbalization that the lack of these skills is holding back pupils, what well, some pupils, you know, at the bottom end of the distribution when they get to secondary, you know, they're struggling in history because they can't interpret the text in a source or, or kind of make, make the necessary inferences. So it could have, you know, a, a pretty good payoff. And I, I don't think we fully cracked phonics, um, but it seems to me that's unlikely to be the binding constraint for a lot of these pupils. I'd be interested to see what you guys think. But this is one of the reasons why I'm very interested in fluency at the moment, you know, as the bridge between decoding and comprehension. And this is not anywhere near as well understood as, you know, phonics and decoding, but it's eminently researchable. Like, I think if we put a lot of effort into this for five years, uh, we could potentially make some gains. You know, we've got good measures of fluency. We've got people doing interesting things around it, you know, Hearts for Learning, Charles Dickens Primary School. So the stuff to test, like really well designed and, and thought through stuff. And yeah, so as Secretary of State for Education, I put a big focus on this, spend some money on research and work with people who are already doing good stuff in the sector and see what we could learn, essentially, and see if we can see if we can help pupils who are kind of currently finishing primary school, still struggling to read, uh, to, to do it a bit better. Becky, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree that reading fluency is the greatest priority. And before the pandemic, I was working with a set of secondary schools in East Sussex, where we were trying to look at what to do about the students who were not what's known as secondary ready, and not least how to assess them, but also the organisation of their lessons and ultimately which lessons and subjects would they not have access to because we needed to run catch up classes. And it's really such a big group of students who some of them even managed to muddle through and reach expected level in their reading um, comprehension in their SATs. But when you assess their reading fluency on entry into secondary school, it's not high enough to be able to sit in a geography or history lesson and access a lesson. Um, and so that's the kind of biggest challenge really for secondary teachers and ultimately for the ability for these kids to progress. I suppose the thing I would say beyond kind of on the what should we do is well to make something a priority we have to make other things less of a priority um, and I think we have to be quite explicit about what we take out of the primary curriculum I've already talked in an earlier question about my views on on maths um, there's a lot we can take out there but that's largely to get better at maths not to get better at reading fluency the dilemma seems to me that the content that we have now in the national curriculum to fill up what I call the afternoons in primary school, the stuff that goes on when you've done the three R's is just way, way too big. 
um, and that ideally we just need to massively slim it down because it's really important that children are able to also enjoy primary school, have space for school trips, for going out, walking around their local environment, um, doing forest schools or whatever else it is you want to do. Um, and when we talk about what we need to take out, that gets tough when we've been in this world of greater and greater prescription around these narrowly defined things that we call subjects that are largely arbitrary distinctions of things that we call stuff like geography and stuff like that. Um, and it makes it very difficult. I think there's also subjects we need to look at whether we remove them from the national curriculum altogether and just admit that defeat, um, of which top of my list would be modern foreign languages. Now, if there's any primary teachers listening who love teaching it and who know their kids are having a great experience, you get to still teach it. You get to still teach it, but we could remove it from the national curriculum and schools that believe their students are having a poor experience where they're not deriving anything that could be more useful than the other things they could do during that time would be allowed to stop teaching it um, because it doesn't have any wider utility in the system in terms of what you go on and study in secondary school not least because now primary schools are all delivering all different modern foreign languages so it doesn't matter if you studied at a primary school or not because your peers at secondary school won't have um, and other things from teacher tap that we see that primary school teachers find it very difficult to deliver are things like design and technology. Another thing that I think is a candidate for removal from the national curriculum. So for me, all of this is about really clearing out space to achieve greater fluency in the three R's and greater space for discretion for teachers to deliver experiences in primary school that are seen as just valuable, rewarding, enjoyable in their own right. And I think that's a really important part of primary education out of childhood in general. So I think we've both ended up kind of talking about the same thing. And of course, primary schools need to achieve this whilst hitting a major, major funding crisis that will be caused by falling school roles and about and with the absence of local authorities to take um, capacity out of the system and shut schools down where they need to be shut down in systematic ways. So for lots of individual primary schools, they should be looking at the state of their catchment area and their school role and really panicking about how on earth they're going to survive over the next decade with massive massive falls in pupil numbers we're in a in a part of the country in kent where you've got quite a lot of village schools yeah and i'm finding it more and more difficult to imagine that it won't become more cost effective to bus those children to a school in a town as yeah. opposed to having you know schools which have maybe two full-time members of staff and three or four part-time staff and things you know so I, I, you know, I, I can see where you're coming from on that, and I'm sure that's. But these decisions have to be planned, and you know, the funding formula isn't enough to, through its own work, deliver good outcomes. I mean, the question of small schools is an incredibly controversial one. You know, small affluent schools often get the highest per pupil funding in the country, should they, when they're only educating a handful of kids. But then also, I mean, to give the example of my local village school. Um, took an extra form entry to deal with the baby bulge that's just left primary school now. And it did it um, as an act of benevolence to the local authority. It didn't have to, it was a voluntary aided school because it had enough land to stick the huts on um, and then get the buildings built. But the catchment is nowhere near big enough. All the kids who were there were basically all the kids who turned up mid-year would get chucked into this small village school because the local town had no places. 
But the minute that the baby bulge goes, all of that disappears and you're suddenly left with a village school with tons and tons of empty spaces. And, and what does it do? Well, the answer is there needs to be some planning involved. And if you go to the Institute of Education Library, there are all these books written in the 1980s and they're written by local education authority officials saying how to plan for the fall and pupil roles. And it explains exactly what a local authority should do to mothball or shut down places and plan for for what was at the time what I went through I was one of those those kind of dip years where we had a tiny birth cohort um, but in those days we could manage it efficiently and now we have no authority over multi-academy trusts um, and we have local authorities where barely anyone actually works there anymore so they have no capacity to even kind of make good decisions on behalf of their own schools it will be a mess I can imagine there are exactly zero people working in local authorities who wish they still had control over that process. <laughs> yeah, but it's still their schools and ultimately their employees, you know. I, I don't know how it will play out, but let's see. It will be messy. There's just going to be a lot of schools desperately trying to run with classes of 22. And any head teachers who are listening to this just know the economics of running a primary school with classes of 22 is absolutely disastrous. You will have to strip out every single teaching assistant in your school. Um, you'll have to strip your senior leadership team down to the bare bones so that everybody is working in the classroom. And any single child who has additional needs will have to be excluded from the school because you will not be able to cater for them. And that will create a crisis in the system, a crisis at the moment gets dealt with by the fact we have these classes of 30 which allows enough resources to cross-subsidise children who have special educational needs who are not properly being funded in the system for primary schools. Wow, that, that, I mean, that's pretty bleak, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Sorry. Is that, yeah, <laughs> I can't, us recording this on a Monday afternoon. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's essential that we talk about it because it's it is. on the yeah. horizon. Yeah. Um, and I think our demographic is largely school leaders and, um, mm -hmm. you know, if, if the, you know, because the numbers are never exactly precise, but you would find that they're probably 34 to 48 years of age, you know, probably mm -hmm. pushing towards senior leadership in their, in their careers. And um, mm -hmm. so it'll, it'll be on their minds. And if it's not, it should be, you know, because I've definitely seen experienced head teachers talk about this, about how there needs to be something put in place. Um, yeah, hopefully someone in government will listen and, and do something about it. Um, what, the DfE? <laughs> Are we sure we want them to do something? <laughs> Usually everything they do is a bit of a disaster. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I mean, if I could circle back to your, what you were saying, Sam, about um, reading and secondary teacher engagement and things. I do think, you know, it's very hard to go outside your own bubble. Um, but we do see a lot of secondary teachers engaging with primary colleagues on social media, certainly from conversations I have with people like Chris Such, it seems to be akin to maths where if pupils are having issues in secondary school, well, then they go back to year five. And I say this to heads of departments who have agreed with me on that. So I'm hoping it's not based on fantasy, but they'll go back instead of going back to number bonds and sort of the principles of counting and you know the the, the real core building blocks of, of numeracy, they'll they'll go back to adding fractions in in year five and i think something similar might be happening in reading where you know the distinction between decoding and reading isn't necessarily marked out and i think that would probably be our next step across phases is to identify where the the issues are because like you said you know it might not be that phonics is the issue 
but where it is the issue, having the, the willingness and the capacity to go to that level and say, okay, right, we're going to teach these children the code and see how that impacts on their ability to read and engage with other, other subjects. The first best solution has to be uh, to get this stuff right at primary school. And uh, yeah, if there's any cause for optimism, I think it just comes from more research. There's a lot of low hanging fruit is really what I was saying around doing research in this area, I think. Um, so we'll see. In the, in the teacher gap, you both discuss the limited role that money plays in teacher retention. How would you solve the retention crisis? And what can school leaders do in their own spaces to retain their teachers? Yeah, so we, we talk a lot about performance related pay in the book, um, which was a, a kind of big debate at the time we were writing it. And we we're very skeptical about that on the grounds that proper performance related pay, you know, if you achieve target X, then you get paid Y or you get a pay rise Y next year. The evidence for it is very inconsistent about whether it works or not. It often leads to cheating and gaming. Uh, and, and there's plenty of evidence that it demotivates teachers because they end up sort of feeding this data beast rather than doing the thing they love, which is, which is teaching. I mean, since writing the book, I've become more impressed by the evidence on uh, just having pay being high enough, you know, not conditional on hitting targets or whatever for retention. And uh, my colleague Asma Ben-Hender and I have just written a paper evaluating uh, an increase in early career pay for um, maths um, and uh, physics secondary school teachers. Um, and where we find that a 1% increase in pay leads to about a 3% chance of, 3% uh, reduction, sorry, in the probability of leaving teaching for those teachers in those subjects in secondary in their early careers. And this lines up pretty nicely with uh, similar studies and evidence from the US. So I, I think it's important just that we pay teachers enough in that early career period to keep them in the profession, essentially. But that, uh, that doesn't change our view on performance-related pay and the dangers of having that. Um, I think, Becky, go for it. I was going to say something. Um that perhaps people won't like to hear about flexible working, which is something that I think about a lot and I worry about a lot. I think it's particularly pertinent to primary schools because the primary teacher labor market is firstly largely feminized. It's a group of women who largely like children. That's why they became teachers. And so when they have children themselves, they tend to want to spend time with these children, which presents a dilemma for keeping women in their 30s and 40s in the labor market. And we've seen increasingly that um, flexible working has been the solution for primary schools, um, where it's very common now that your children will have two, two teachers each year. Um, we should be attuned to some of the dilemmas of this. And we know the dilemmas and we know them because of um, adjacent research in adjacent fields that's been done on the impact of the time you spend with a teacher um, on how well they know you and therefore how effectively they can meet your, your needs. We know it from two different types of studies. Um, one of the sets of studies are the looping studies. So looping is the word that Americans use to describe what happens when a, a primary and elementary, a primary teacher keeps on a year group for a second year. 
and they show that largely the impact is positive. And it's positive because the teacher already knows them in the September of the second year, and so they can hit the ground running with attending to the individual needs of the kids. Um, and there's good reasons why we don't do it. Um, not least if you have ineffective teachers, then it becomes very inequitable who has what, who has which teachers. Um, but the other literature is the literature on the incidence of specialist teachers within elementary schools. So this is the idea that within an elementary school, suppose you have a two form entry, one of you should specialize in maths and the other in English language and the arts and you should swap the classes round. So one of you teaches maths twice and one of you teaches um, the English element twice to both classes. And we show that that type of practice damages student learning. We're fairly confident it damages student learning because the people who are teaching the classes don't know the kids as well. And so they're less able to make, meet their individual needs. So then it comes to thinking about what happens when you have a job share. Well, if you teach a class for two and a half days a week, it will take you precisely twice as much of the year to get to know your class. All the time you're getting to know your class, you're going to be less effective than the time when you have got to know your class, which is you know later on in the term and in, in the rest of the year. And so we should just simply be attuned to the fact that if we have created the job of being a teacher such that there is a lot of work to do outside the hours of quarter to nine and 3.15, which we have, and we have very high expectations around planning and marking parents' evenings, after school meetings and everything else, if we choose to do that, then the consequence is going to be that people who want to see their own children will put in requests for flexible working. Not only does that increase the total size of the teacher labour market by half every time someone does it, um, but it creates these situations where those teachers are going to be less effective for the classes, we think, than they would be were they there full time. So my question would really be, you know, would I rather, if I was a mother, which I am, have my kids taught by somebody who walked in and taught at quarter to nine and walked out at quarter plus three. They were an experienced teacher, knew what they were doing, and they did largely nothing else. Books were never read, um, were never looked at, never marked. Um, I couldn't see them for parents' evening beyond having a chat at the classroom door. That was the only time I could ever see them. Um, they went to no after-school meetings, participated in nothing. But would I rather have that and have them as my class teacher for my kids rather than have two class teachers who would take longer to get to know my children? But then we're going home every day and doing all this planning and marking and documentation, new schemes of work for Ofsted, everything else. Which would I rather have? Well, based on the evidence I know, which I would personally rather have. And I think we should probably have that debate about the consequences of running a highly kind of professional workforce with a very high burden of work that comes with it. And then my only other thing to say based on teacher gap about teacher retention is that we know one thing that's really important for teacher retention. So here's my challenge to head teachers. The most important thing for teacher retention is people and having friends in school and in particular having a best friend in school if you work with your best friend the costs of you leaving are just so high and so heads may look at that and just say well what am i supposed to do about that well what we know is that nqts when they arrive or whatever we call them nowadays they um they are the least likely in the system to have a best friend which is somewhat inevitable right they're new at the school but we have to ask ourselves 
who could be their best friend when we look around at the school? Who doesn't have a best friend? And how can we ensure that teachers who don't have somebody who they're pally with can help, we can help them find somebody? And it may be that they have been placed in a year one class and um, they're not a natural friendship fit for the other year one teacher, or perhaps there is nobody, but we know that there's another young teacher up in year five who, who they could become pally with. And it's, our, it's in our own selfish interests as head teachers to try and act as matchmakers and facilitate friendships and places for people to become friends with each other. Yeah, I think there are other things uh, head teachers can do as well that don't rely on, um, you know, changing working patterns or or, you know, trying to pay teachers more, which is not always in their gift. Obviously, there are budget constraints. But uh, I've, I've developed this questionnaire which attempts to measure some of these aspects of uh, teachers' working environment in school, um, which is aligned with what Becky says. And we've tested this with um, 1,400 teachers, and it's designed to measure stuff that the research tells us is important around, around retention, essentially. And that is four things, collegiality, which is a part, uh, you know, aligned with what Becky says about best friends, the sort of relationships at school, supportive leadership, which does what it says in the tin, behavior policy, uh, such that sort of, you know, there's clear and consistently enforced rules, and then stuff around sort of workload, that is having to go out of your way to do things that you're your, uh, you know, your school leaders asking you to do. And we find that they all matter, but it allows us to quantify how much they matter relative to each other. And so the most important thing for, for stopping teachers leaving the school is the supportive leadership one. So you can think of that as, you know, leadership that listens to the views of staff and then carefully explains the reason decisions have been made. Um, it's not rocket science, but it's not always done. And also support teachers to a good job and that to do a good job, sorry, you know, uh, helps them in their role um, and recognizes a job well done afterwards. Interestingly, when it comes to preventing teachers leaving the profession overall, uh, you know, not just their school, uh, workload and compliance comes out as the strongest um, predictor of teachers' desire to leave the profession. And so that is things like not asking teachers to generate data or evidence, I'm doing air quote, quotes kind of for the sake of it, uh, the, which is definitely one of the things they'd be doing after 3.15. Uh, and ensuring that non-teaching tasks, things like requirements around marking or lesson planning, again, definitely in the after 3.15 category, don't get in the way of, you know, the core task of, of teaching and learning. What you said, Becky, about, uh, about specialisms and splitting teachers, mm. I've spent quite a lot of time talking about how I think a specialist model would be better for academic attainment in the UK. And so now, you know, it feels quite counterintuitive, but most mm. of the things that I've learned over the last 15 years have initially been counterintuitive. So I'm going to have to reanalyze whether or not I can take that position. It is the opposite of um, what makes sense to me. So I, I know it's worth thinking about more, if that makes sense. Well, perhaps if people want to understand why it's true in their head teachers, perhaps over the next academic year, pick one of your teachers and go in at the start of the year and watch how they interact with the class and how they teach the class and talk to them about what goes wrong and what the problems are and really try to get your head around the extent to which they don't know the class at the start of the year and the extent to which that causes problems, whether it's problems, behavior problems or problems where they're not attending to 
particular children who are misunderstanding things. They're not understanding why when a child is sitting there not doing any work, what the likely causes are likely to be given that child. And then keep revisiting that same class and having those conversations and say to that teacher, what have you learned recently about this class that's allowing you to make good decisions about them? And I think within the system, partly because like secondary teachers are very proud of their subject, subject specialism, we think, we think that what we're doing is imparting knowledge. I think we overemphasize within the system like the importance of knowing stuff as, oppo as opposed to knowing children and knowing who children are and what they need in order to feel happy and motivated and to keep them on track and keep them understanding things in the classroom. And that is, you know, that's the superpower that primary teachers have, that secondary teachers never get to have. They never get to find out who the kids are because they always teach so many students on any given day. Um, but it's a really powerful thing to be able to work out exactly what makes an individual child tick and how to keep them learning. I was, I was trying my very best to frame that in a way that made it sure that it was me that has the issue and not your response. Because, you know, I, I totally, um, yeah, I'm more than happy to change my mind when in the face of sort of better or more convincing evidence. Following on from this, autonomy plays quite an important role. Um, but I find there's a bit of a tension to, between the degrees to which autonomy can be granted in different situations and different aspects around the school. I don't know if it's fair to ask this, but what would your ideal distribution of autonomy be? Yeah, so there's the question of autonomy of what and autonomy for whom and how much within it. I mean, the downsides to me of autonomy generally depend on the nature of staff. If you've got teaching staff who are inexperienced, who are poorly motivated, poorly suited to teaching, then you don't want to be giving them autonomy because the downsides are very high. The upsides of autonomy depend on the benefits of alignment often to the students themselves. And we want to, for example, be like very prescriptive about things like behavior in situations where teachers share students. So if there's job share arrangements or there's sharing of students between teaching assistants or teachers, one of the things you often see within primary schools is if you've got your own class you can devise your own behavior policy and can be whatever you want for the year and so that's an example of like the extent to which you share students defines how much you need to align um, and then in other things you know it's only worth being prescriptive if you know what you want to be prescriptive about so it's worth being prescriptive about the curriculum if you're convinced you have amazing resources and schemes that are going to be really a bit really beneficial, sure, you know, go for it. But if you don't, why on earth would you be prescriptive? Um, it's only worth being prescriptive about pedagogy um, if there's demonstrable benefits of everybody working the same way. And I would argue that largely there's not when it comes to benefits of pedagogy and that the downsides end up being very high. I don't know what Sam thinks about autonomy. Yeah, I think I broadly agree with that. Um, we've actually just uh, recently been writing a paper on this, which has not come out yet, along with John Jerram and others, um, where uh, we've got this amazing TALIS video study data where they oh, yeah. administer a maths test at the start. Um, then, th then they uh, get a questionnaire to the teacher. They're all maths teachers in this data. And they get them to rate their autonomy in a whole bunch of uh, you know, areas, domains. And then at the end, this, they all get taught something about uh, simultaneous equations, I think it is, and then at the end they have a test on that. And this allows you to look at, it's quite crude, but I think it's informative, 
you know, what correlations do we see between the amount of autonomy the teacher, their teach, maths teacher has over these different areas and the sort of amount of gains they make in their learning. By and large, uh, we don't see any benefits for pupil attainment when, pu when their teachers have, uh, you know, different levels of autonomy. Uh, of course, this fundamentally depends on what they what the teachers choose to do with that autonomy, right? But we do see downsides, um, quite big downsides in terms of teachers having uh, lower job satisfaction when they're very constrained in particular areas. The one minor exception to this is early career teachers, uh, that is teachers with less than three three years of experience in this data where their pupils do seem to do a bit better if they have constrained autonomy specifically around pedagogy, i.e. somebody's uh, you know, constraining their choice around how they teach this subject matter. The data, you know, you're not looking at huge sample sizes at all by that point, but I think that makes sense essentially. And their pupils also show higher levels of you know, math self-efficacy, their confidence in their mathematics. So the two, two outcome measures uh, line up. The one bit of nuance around this, which maybe addresses your, your question here around the difficulties of this stuff, if you're actually leading a school, uh, the tensions, is what do we actually mean by autonomy? And the kind of simple layman's uh, you know, dictionary definition is, is your choice constrained, essentially, or are you allowed to do whatever you want? When psychologists write about autonomy, they mean something more nuanced um, and potentially very interesting for these purposes, which is, you know, you're autonomous if you act in accordance with your own reasoning, which is different to being constrained, right? So when I worked for Becky, if she told me exactly what to do, by and large, Becky and I have similar interests, similar sort of <laughs> ways of seeing the world. And so I was probably still acting autonomously, right? That wasn't what Becky was like. I'm just using this as an example. But my choice was constrained, you know, uh, but I was still acting in line with what I thought was a good idea and what I thought was interesting work and so on. And, you know, the the high road to school leaders doing school leadership well is to do this kind of influencing process um, where you listen to people's views, um, you act on them, you explain why you've made the decisions you have so people understand the reasoning behind it. You probably explain it twice or three times so people really understand the reasoning behind it. You use evidence. And this, this kind of squares the circle quite nicely, right? We, if we're going to force teachers to do stuff, we should have high evidential standards behind it. And by the way, it's, you know, it's also easier to persuade people in, in this kind of idealized influencing way if there's loads of evidence behind it, right? So that kind of makes it look, uh, it kind of dissolves some of those tensions and difficulties if you think about it in that way, I think. I mean, I think there's, there's definitely like an autonomy thread run through lots of our discussion already and what your response there sam has done is sort of tie three or four different pieces together because if you are leading your school in such a way then i think yeah it almost feels like it's, it's your decision you know and and you you know what's the metaphor if the ship's moving in the same direction or everyone's going taking the ship in the same direction but things are much easier and also much more enjoyable places to be what do you think becky the future professional development will look like um, it might not look so different to how it looks now, um, because whilst lots and lots of stuff has gone online and it's accelerated through the pandemic and for lots of specialist teaching and of new ideas to teachers, that's great. There's some element that always has to be bespoke, it has to be face to face engagement, just given the embodied nature of classroom teaching and also that 
we need teachers to learn to become the teacher that they need to be in relatively diverse manners. So that's the part that I don't see changing that much. Um, but obviously at the moment, for lots of teachers, they have access to almost no program of support that supports them in the classroom. So the professional development, such as they have it, explicitly doesn't support improvement in their classroom teaching. And that's the thing that, you know, that the coaching has been trying to find a solution to. But like any one-to-one -one instruction, like, you know, tuition for kids, you know, extremely expensive. Um, so we need to be cautious about claiming that we are going to one day achieve some nirvana where everybody gets, you know, weekly instructional coaching because for half a million teachers in the country, we're just not ever going to be able to afford it, I suspect. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the challenge with training is, I think, a pretty good way of thinking about it overall, heuristic, is just reducing the distance that you need something to transfer between the training and real life. Uh, and some of that is expensive, right? And coaching is effective, but are there more cost-effective ways of doing it? I don't think we have uh, a good answer to that yet. I mean, another way in which I think, I hope it's, um, you know, future PD looks different, current PD, just around um, tailoring to subject, which is another way of reducing that, that transfer gap. And um, I think Ambition Institutes have got um, a pilot program this year um, for a sort of math specific ECF uh, for secondary teachers. And again, this adds to the costs, but you've only got to develop that program once, right? Uh, and then you can roll it out elsewhere. So it seems to me like that kind of thing would be valuable um, in making this more relevant, more enjoyable, and also probably, probably more effective. Um, but you know, further research required to establish whether that's actually true. I think there are other ways as well of, of tailoring that are maybe less expensive. It doesn't have to be at the teacher level. So if you're in charge of, um, you know, if you're leading a primary school, you're leading a phase um, within a large primary school, it's plausible that you have pretty good knowledge um, about teachers' professional development needs, you know, if you know your staff. And one of the things that I like about um, the framework that we develop in our EEF meta-analysis is that it's quite flexible. So, you know, it's a toolkit of these things that we call mechanisms, these kind of active ingredients. And if you know that actually there's a reasonably good level of knowledge and, you know, sort of appetite for changing and improving practice in a given area, then you, you can kind of design the professional development around that by focusing on uh, you know, building in these mechanisms that address, you know, the techniques. So you focus much more perhaps on rehearsal and feedback and so on, and then embedding it in practice. Clearly, you're still focusing on some kind of, you know, average, <laughs> average teacher in your department. But this is cheaper, more flexible way of still kind of making sure you're not wasting time going back over the knowledge parts, which may already be secure in the, you know, the teachers in your school. So yeah, there's, mul there's multiple routes to reducing this, this sort of distance to transfer subject, uh, the design of the professional development uh, and, and, and going whole, you know, the whole hog on individualized instructional coaching. And hopefully sort of somewhere between those things, we can just, yeah, we can, we can tailor and minimize the, the need for big transfer after training. So small incremental gains as we move into the future. You know, I thought if anyone's gonna know what the future of education and 
in professional development looks like it's going to be back in Sam. So I had to had to ask and see if there's anything on the on the horizon. The last question I've got is probably my favourite one that I've got a, had the chance to ask, because um, I don't know what the response will be. Um, so <laughs> if we imagine that a simulator exists that allows you to perfectly model pupil behaviour, and as a result, you can conduct studies on massive sample sizes with zero ethical issues. So you can, in effect, study anything related to education. The catch is that you can only conduct one study. What would you investigate? Shall I start just because I'm not sure I've got a great answer and then we can finish on an amazing response from Sam, which I'm looking forward to. I mean, <laughs> for us as researchers, this is like putting a young child in a sweet shop. I mean, it's you just are absolutely paralyzed by this. Um, but then also, like for me, you know, I only work a day a week as an academic at the moment. And part of the reason I do that, apart from teacher tap, is I've, I'm kind of not actually sure whether I really believe there are big things that we could research that could fix education because of the complexity of the system. But if I, so I try to just think, well, what do I think is the biggest issue that is worth learning more about? And so I'm going to give a little nod to our friend, teacher and co-author Mike Hobis here. And having had children myself, I will say the biggest issue in education is understanding more about attentiveness and motivation. And why there are all these kids who are kind of present, but not present in the classroom. Um, and so I suppose my starting point would be in order to study it, to really go out and ask teachers who think they've got something to say to this, to propose their best techniques for raising the engagement of quite a specific group of kids, the kids who have high, no behavior problems, but high tendency to daydream or get distracted during class in two situations. And one's during an instructional period, teacher at the front of the room, and then the second during independent work. And they might be different types of techniques and just say, what have you worked out how to do? And then get people to test out those types of techniques and do whatever we can to just do measurements better. So, um, you know, one, once upon a time, a very long time ago now, um, in New Zealand, the um, academic, the late academic Graham Nuttall studied the classroom behaviour of students. And at the time, there was almost no technology. So he was having to hang microphones on kids. And it was amazing what the kids used to talk about during the class. It's such a fascinating studies. But he also couldn't observe the kind of the silent periods of distraction where we we don't know what was going on in the kid's head, but they clearly weren't doing any work. I mean, ideally, we'd managed to stick like needles into their heads or something in this simulator and actually look at like, what are they thinking about? I realise we can't do that. Oh, at I'm least... sure Elon Musk can give it a go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because this is the big problem with attentiveness. Like, how do we know, Kieran, that you're paying attention to us at the moment? I mean, we can see you nodding there, but are you really paying attention? So we've got to get to grips with that measurement issue. Um, but also, we've just got the access to video and audio. Um, and, and other intermediary scales of like, what work is the student doing and how productive are they? Because I think if we could like fix this issue, I think it covers quite a big section of kids that kind of get lost in the system. They're sort of the average kids who muddle through the education system. They don't have particularly overt behavior problems. They never cause anyone any trouble. They also weirdly don't appear to learn that much. And you, 
and they often don't know what they're supposed to be doing even though they've sat through you talking at them for 15 minutes and so for me those are the interesting kids in the system simply because there are so many of them um, and if we could work out how to engage them and keep them learning in an active way I think we could get the productivity of learning really up a great deal in the system. Yeah, um, my answer is actually very similar to Becky, which either... Oh, no, that means we're actually going to have to do it, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> it either means we've independently settled on exactly the right answer, or we've just discussed things that are similar to this before. Yeah. <laughs> or it is uh, the right yeah. answer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so mine was going to be around attention as well. And, you know, Peps has that nice phrase that attendance is mandatory, but attending is not. And there's a reason we don't know very much about this, as Becky says, that it's crazy hard to measure. And Graham Nuttall really is just a kind of inkling that this is an interesting idea rather than, uh, you know, a definitive proof of anything in this area. Uh, so I think it's almost impossible to study in real life, but who cares? Because we got this special stimulator that you've gifted us, Kieran. So <laughs> it doesn't even matter. Um, yeah, and I, I think this would be, I think this would just be so, so interesting. Um, I think uh, somebody that I'd definitely go to to provide some of the uh, you know insights around what we would test would be Adam Boxer, who has put so much thought into you know how does the order of the words that I say to pupils affect what they're attending to while I finish the sentence that I'm on, and a whole range of other stuff. And his blogs on this are really really interesting. You know, building on building a lot of uh, Douglas Mobs work and so on. But I'd love to put some of that stuff in the simulator, get Adam to train some teachers. And then I actually interpreted your brief as being, we don't even need to worry about measurement. The simulator will just deal with it for right. us. So, yeah, great, great. <laughs> but that, <laughs> yeah, if, uh, yeah, gatekeeper is the, uh, sorry, attention is the gatekeeper of learning. And uh, if, if nothing's going through the gate, uh, ain't nothing mm -hmm. getting learned. Uh, so it's just so important. Yeah, I mean, if, if your magical machine isn't going to do the, the maths for you at the end, then you know, you, you built it wrong. <laughs> is Adam Boxer's blog a chemical orthodoxy? Is, that, is he still using yeah, that address? Is. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. right. One of the good ones, there are many. I think the blog is titled Keeping the One But Losing the Many. Um, and there's probably 25 more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I reckon most people listening will probably have heard of Adam, but if they haven't, they should definitely go and check that out. You know, he's got some interesting thoughts about cognitive load theory and how to sort of support teachers in utilising the, the theory in the classroom. And it's always well worth checking out. And I think, yeah, attention, you know, I was lucky enough to talk to Peps maybe about a year ago, maybe I suppose at the start of this, this calendar year. And yeah, he was saying about, you know, talking about the available literature and how, you know, they hoped he had more and stuff like that there because, you know, it, it is so important. Um, and, you know, I learned so much from listening to him. And if it were possible to get this deep, you know, I think that's really good use of the of the opportunity you guys have here with this uh, imaginary machine. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, all I said to do is say thank you very much for joining me, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's been it's been great talking to you. Thanks yeah, it's been it. fun. <laughs>